the Faith Science Podcast. My name is Tyler Bubbles, and welcome back to the first Sunday after Christmas for the week of December 31st, 2023, and I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to get into this week's podcast, and I'm excited that you are joining me for New Year's Eve for church. It's awesome to be thinking about this as the last podcast for the 2023 year, and this also means that we have done this podcast for six years years, which is mind-boggling to me. That's a whole craziness in and of itself. And if there should be a special episode, probably in the next week here, we'll be kind of celebrating that moment of getting to six years of doing the podcast and kind of getting into the thought and reflection with all that. So look forward to having that coming soon. But also, it's exciting here to be at the end of this year, But it's also a Sunday, I will argue, is the least preached Sunday of the whole calendar year. And the reason being is that typically after Christmas Eve, Christmas Day services, the pastor takes off and it's not uncommon for a lot of churches to have a hymn sing. And I would argue that we really miss something huge With the text that we have this week, I think there's a lot of great things to be able to get into, and especially where we'll get into with the science tie-in this week, I think there's some fun things that we can kind of get into. I would say the science tie-in this week, I wouldn't say is necessarily fun, but I think the tie-in is very relatable for us to be able to understand how God continues to work, how God fulfills promises is one of the big things that we'll be getting into. But before we jump into that, we have to look back to last week's question, which was, how do you hang on to hope while you're waiting for an extended period of time? And I think part of that answer will come in our science tie-in this week, but I think it's the aspect of what is hope in and of itself. Hope is this drive of something deeper than ourselves, realizing that there is something else that is motivating, that is driving, that is pushing us forward. When I think about, as I'm getting to the six-year mark here of this podcast and figuring out every week how to have something drop, there has been definitely times when I am tired. But it's also the aspect of God working through me that this is going to benefit not just me, but so many other people. That God's then saying, no, let me take control of this. We'll figure this out. You're going to do this. And I think that's the aspect of it. I think there's a lot of when things are beyond ourselves, it can help with that hope. I think it's also that aspect of realizing that whatever is coming is greater. And so when that comes, it's going to be greater as long as I keep putting in the work, as long as I keep going to work, as long as I keep doing whatever the thing is. And that hope continues to drive. And I think that aspect can be helpful even if it's a longer wait than expected. One easy example for me quickly here is I recently went through some physical therapy for a bike accident that I had almost eight years ago. And I I just, for whatever reason, multiple different reasons, never got into physical therapy. And am I still doing some recovery on that right now? Yes. Have I gotten through the physical therapy section of it? Yes. Did we find some things that were going wrong with me? Yes. But it was also the aspect of 
there was a couple different things that led up to me even going to physical therapy, realizing that maybe this isn't structural. Maybe this is something that is some muscles that are just acting wonky. And that's exactly what it was. And then, okay, now it's this process of I need to keep working these muscles, getting them stronger to be able to accomplish and get them to the places that they need to be. That hope of me just sitting there and waiting and hoping that it's just going to happen. No, but me taking some action here and realizing, no, there is hope that I can get this back to the way that it's supposed to be is very possible. And so I think there's that aspect of it. But let's just jump into it because we kind of have hope injected into the text this week. So let's just jump into it. The Old Testament reading or first reading is from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10 to chapter 62, verse 3. Again, this is taking in more of a open-ended stance on how the people of Israel, God has not forgotten them. God looks at them as a huge treasure. And in doing that, God is going to vindicate them, then bring them out. There is going to be salvation that is brought forth and that this is going to be something that is beautiful to God. And again, it's this trusting through the process, no matter how weird and hard it is at the time being, that God is going to work this through. And it's just hang in there and keep looking for it because God will continue to be there, continue to trust God in that. The psalm that goes with that is Psalm 148, all 14 verses of it. This is a praise psalm and the psalmist is going through and look at all the things that God has done. He's created the heavens. He has the angels. He has created the sun and the moon and the stars and all these things. And then it starts getting into What can't God do? Look at the creation around us from the sea monsters to the deep, from the fire, hail, snow, frost, storms, wind, everything God has made, mountains, hills, fruit trees and cedars, wild animal and cattle and birds and creeping things. All these things that God has created and it's all there to exalt God, to be lifted up and look at the amazing thing of who God is. And thus, as the people of Israel, we're trying to draw close to him so that we can give that praise as well. The second reading or the epistle text this week is out of Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 to 7. This then is kind of this re-summarization of what has gone on that here we have God sent his son to be born of a woman under the law in order to redeem those who are under the law that we might be adopted as children. And because we are children, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then an heir through God, that we are being welcomed into God's family in a much deeper connection because of what Jesus Christ did. And this birth story is the beginning process of us getting more intimate with God. The gospel text this week is out of Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 40. This, I think, is a such a cool story. It's after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph are bringing their son for purification, which is under the law. It's going back to the early days of the Mosaic law of what you're supposed to do and bringing in the sacrifice. And while there, there are two different people who have been promised to see God in fleshed before they die, Simeon 
and Anna. And here you get this beautiful thing from Simeon when he realizes and is holding the child that the fulfillment of all these prophecies and all these different things. And I love verse 32, a light to reveal to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. In the tradition that I've been raised in, that is something that is stated fairly regularly, but it's this recognition of who Jesus is, this recognition of how special this is, and giving praise to that, giving praise and honor to God fulfilling promises to these people that God is going to come and be part of their lives, is going to touch them in fleshed. And then we get in verse 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So this idea of, again, this is the kind of the end of the birth story, and now we're going to slowly move, or actually fairly quickly move into Jesus's ministry. So before we jump into how faith and science come together this week, we'll do our shameless plugs full. Working Preacher, if you haven't checked out Working Preacher, I'd highly recommend it between the Sermon Brainwaves podcast, their commentaries, the discussions. Since I'm not an ordained minister, I use them on a weekly basis to help bring you this podcast. I find it extremely useful to be able to have not only myself, but all these different commentaries and discussions and coming from different biblical scholars from all over the world. So if you haven't checked out workingpreacher.org, I'd highly recommend it. It's a great resource, whether you're in the front or if you're sitting in the pew, being able to prepare for the text week to week. I'd also highly recommend checking out the Revised Common Lectionary coming from Vanderbilt's Divinity Library. I really enjoy using them, how they lay out the text week to week, but also the art hymns, liturgical colors, prayers. There's just a great resource to be able to utilize week to week to help get you in the right mindset and be able to just see what are some different resources there to be able to understand and how have different people interpreted these texts, maybe in a more artistic way. So if you haven't checked that out, I would highly recommend checking out the Revised Common Lectionary coming from Vanderbilt's Divinity Library. It's a great, great resource. Finally, I'd highly recommend checking out the Green Blades Preaching Roundtable and the Green Blades Rising Publications. These are either a weekly reflection or a monthly newsletter that goes through and it talks about a lot of different ecological echoes, implications, urgencies, a lot of different things where you're bringing some of these different faith and science ideas into your real life context. And again, it's more of a ecologically focused idea. And if you're enjoying sitting down and listening to me for a half an hour talk about these text weekly week, I'd highly recommend checking out this resource. It'll be the first link in the resource section of the description down below. It's an amazing resource, great resource, a lot of different voices going on over there. So if you haven't checked that out, I'd highly recommend it. God fulfilling promises. It's something that we all have been told. We all know it happens. We've all probably seen different aspects of it, but yet at times It's hard for us to see it in real life always and being able to actually put an example directly to it or we're able to just really see it in fleshed. It's that whole idea of the praise that Simeon gets into when it's the child that has been promised is now in front of me and all these promises that have been laid out are suddenly right there. God did this. This is exactly what God talked about, that now here is this child who is going to be a different type of leader than we have ever seen before, that it's going to bring Israel to a different place. And at this point, Simeon and Anna probably don't even understand what that means. 
I think within the 20th century, there was a really easy example of this that I think can help us understand the fulfillment of promises and how amazing that can be in our day-to-day life. And especially when the topic that we'll get into here, how we are so close to taking it to a whole nother level than we have before. So let's get into it. Depending on your age, the phrase that I am going to say, in fact, the word that I'm going to say is going to feel very different. And I'm going to say if you're in the baby boomer era or older, there might be still some slight fear associated with this next word. And if you're younger than that, I think it's a word that doesn't strike near the fear and it's something that seems old. It seems out of date. It seems like something that there is no reason to be concerned about anymore. And that word's polio. Polio is a virus that has actually poliomyelitis, which is a virus, and it just encapsulated the world in the 20th century. Now, granted, we can see back in even Egyptian paintings that this has probably been something that has been around for years and centuries and probably followed humans around basically as long as we've been around. And it even had been nicknamed previously the infantile paralysis. And throughout history have kind of been a small-scale problem, but definitely had been around. One of the things that they will get into, but part of why it probably wasn't a bigger issue until the 20th century was partially probably because of our poor sanitation properties. So this virus, for most people, 95% of people, it will go, it will hang out in your intestines and doesn't cause any problems. The problem is, is in 5%, it somehow escapes your intestines and then it can start wreaking havoc. So it can start attacking the central nerve system or go up into the brain or, and in doing that, it can cause weakness in the legs where it feels stiff and suddenly then temporarily or prolonged, depending on how bad it does, can cause paralysis. And on top of that, one of the things, especially if you're of the younger generation, we heard plenty about these iron lungs that were these artificial lungs for people because the virus goes and attacks the diaphragm, which helps the lungs breathe. And thus, if you don't have control of that, you need something to help you breathe. This disease is able to be transmitted in two different ways. One, as the active virus coming through fecal matter. And so if exposed in that way, especially as a young child, and this is one of the things that they figure pre-20th century was very possible, especially if you were in the early stages of child and life, you were probably still nursing off your mother and probably getting some antibodies there that you could actually then fight the virus. If you get beyond those weaning years and are exposed to the virus and don't have this antibodies built up, and within your own body at that point, or have the additional help coming from mom, you potentially had this bigger problem. But if, again, it gets into your body and it gets around the community, it can also be shared just by speaking, just the saliva being shared as we're in close communication with people, 
very similar to what we kind of went through with COVID-19, that it can be spread that way. Due to the Industrial Revolution and how people kind of got crammed into cities and how also our sanitation processes within cities were not really quite the same scale that they are now with wastewater treatment, that some of our wastewater and our drinking water were easily shared, it caused the problem where it became higher and higher likelihood, and thus we started getting, even in the teens, started getting these pops of polio virus. And this then continued, and especially after World War II, had a steady incline. So one of the things that then ended up happening is this political upstart of Franklin D. Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was getting some traction and then thought that he ended up getting the virus. Looking back now, there's a lot of people who suspect he had Guillain-Barre syndrome, but people just looked at it that he had polio. And in do that, he signed Basil O'Connor to make a foundation called the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. And O'Connor came up with this idea of crowdfunding campaign, basically, that they started the March of Dimes, that get people to send in, instead of going to the rich to get these big donations, how about we go to the general public and just have these small transactions, very similar to all these different GoFundMe type of campaigns that we have now, but the initial version of it. And this started the March of Dimes, hence why actually after Roosevelt died, that his face is on the dime. In the 1950s, 80% of victims nationwide were receiving funding from the March of Dimes to help with their treatment in some way, along with that a large portion of this money went into research. This led to two very important people. One being Dr. Jonas Salk, who was at the University of Pittsburgh, and he wanted to get into medical research. So in 1947 was the first time that the March of Dimes kind of approached him again with the polio stuff and said, how about we give you some money to be able to update some of your equipment and help you be able to have a more efficient lab? And so he accepted But Connor and Salk met for the first time in person in 1951, and Salk proposed a new idea for a different type of vaccine based off of some experience that he had had with the U.S. Army in World War II. Previously to that point, you would do live virus vaccines. So you would take a virus, have it mutate enough that it wasn't necessarily going to do damage to the body in the mutated form that it was in, but was still close enough to the original that the body would be able to build up antibodies to not only fight this mutant part of what was in the vaccine, but also be able to fight off whatever you're going for. The problem with this is it took a lot of time to be able to get there. We will get to that here in a little bit because that's one other half of this. Salk proposes an idea that hadn't been done before is what if we get a deactivated vaccine or a dead virus vaccine using formaldehyde to be able to actually kill the virus 
enter that into the bloodstream. The white blood cells then build up antibodies because it's a foreign body. It learns that and then is able to take that information to be able to build up your vaccination or your natural immunity to this. So first field studies were done in 1953 with field trials being done in 1954 with a lot of funding by the March of Dimes, which this field study ended up being the largest field study ever really done where 1.8 million school-aged children across the United States were part of this, and it was deemed successful in 1955. And so as this then became successful, again, tons and tons of people get super excited and you get the production of it. Now, remember that this vaccine then is a dead virus vaccine. So you're having different companies produce this. And unfortunately, one company accidentally didn't fully kill the virus, which then led to people getting sick, which then actually led to the federal government getting more involved within vaccine manufacturing and just vaccines in general. And this is where the FDA started to create regulations for vaccines in 1955. So this is going along. The vaccine is working. But again, it's a shot. It's needing multiple shots to get the reaction. It takes a lot more work to be able to have this happen. In 1961, Dr. Albert Sabin of the Children's Hospital in Cincinnati had been working on the live virus like we had talked about earlier. And again, that this is a much slower and it makes a variant that is not harmful to the body. So in doing this, then he was able to create something that was an oral vaccine and it was cheaper to do. And so thus it was easier to be able to implement and really be able to spread far and wide. With doing it this way, polio was basically eradicated from the United States and most of Europe in the 70s and 80s. Currently in the world, we are getting under about 500 cases a year, and we've gotten it down to multiple different areas where there's just enough turbulence that it's hard to actually probably nail down and be able to have the medical infrastructure to be able to do this. Even though that the World Health Organization since 1980, after eradicating smallpox, had made the goal of trying to eradicate polio by 2000, they just fell short. But in doing that, there were three wild types of polio, and one of them has been declared eradicated, which is type 2 as of 1999. So in all of this, we are working through this. We are trying to make sure that the live virus vaccines that Sabin created and ended up getting a Medal of Freedom, so did Salk got a Medal of Freedom here in the United States, the highest honor for a civilian. But the live vaccine they've been trying to phase out because, again, it can mutate and potentially cause additional damage or become viable within the body. So it's been slowly trying to phase that out and just go to Salk's dead virus variant for the world and trying to actually get so that we get to the point where it's completely eradicated like smallpox. What is polio have to do anything with the text that we have this week. Being so far removed from 
the polio epidemic. It feels like small potatoes, but that was at that point a death sentence for a young child, especially that it targeted children. And I've even mentioned in passing to some of older friends of mine, and they talked about that they would go to school and then you'd come back in the fall and you were hoping that all your friends were there, that one of them hadn't all of a sudden gotten polio. It felt like it was just coming out of the woodwork. It come from anywhere. And so to have where you were having the March of Dimes where after the start, 20 years later, they were able to get where they had a viable vaccine which then created hope. And now we're to the point where in developed nations, we don't even think about this virus. We've gotten it to the point where it just sits in our intestine and doesn't do anything. Most people, if you contract it, it really wouldn't do anything. Or it'd be a very minor flu that you got. It isn't the a life-altering sentence that it was at one point. The promise that science was working toward and the March of Dimes got people to buy into the concept of we can figure out some way to cure this. We can figure out some way that we aren't affected by this. We can figure out some way to get beyond this. We can figure out some way to get so that our body is prepared to fight this better than we are now. And we got there. We were able to fulfill that promise. And now we're to the point where we have even reset the bar that we are trying to eradicate it from the globe. And we have gotten it down to Wild cases are under roughly 500 per year for the whole globe. And that's a high number, honestly. It's often much lower than that. It's amazing to me to think about that here we had basically within a generation taking something that was absolutely wreaking havoc in civilization to the point where it is basically gone, completely gone, where we don't even get sick. Jesus coming into the world and being promised that it was going to change things, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel coming from verse 32 of Luke in the second chapter, the promises, the what Anna had been going through day and night praying about this and being able to see the redemption of Jerusalem and the people of Israel and what that was going to mean and how she just rejoiced. When people were able to get this vaccine, they rejoiced. When people were able to, even more recently, I've talked with people who have gone through and how emotional when the first vaccines for COVID-19 were coming out and what that meant for them. Because it was opening up this hope, but it was opening up the promise of what had been promised, that we will figure this out. And it was a step along that course. It was a step toward what was going to be life after. And granted, I know that's still somewhat controversial within certain circles, but it's the idea of that was a step to be able to help us be able to get closer back to what our normal lifestyle was like. These vaccines helped us get to that point where we were able to take steps toward a normal lifestyle where kids didn't have to fear about picking up a virus that was going to be deadly to them. Jesus coming into our lives and recognizing that now things are going to be different because now Jesus was enfleshed and was there beside us to understand the realities of being human and divine. The promise of what God had stated had been fulfilled. And as we are in this Christmas season, it's also the promise of recognizing that Jesus will come again and recognizing that we are now living and waiting on the second half 
of that promise that Jesus will come again. Remembering how God has fulfilled promises. Remembering how we as people have made declarations that we are going to do things. Trusting that God is going to help us in that and being able to take on some of the bigger challenges in our life and watch how it happens. In this case, science saying we're going to take on polio and have done an amazing job and we've almost gotten to the point of eradicating it, which is incredible. So the question I have for you this week is, where have you seen promises fulfilled by God? Where have you seen promises fulfilled by God? Because I think that's the beauty of this Luke story that is the first Sunday of Christmas. And that's what to me is so amazing. It's that hope. God promising and recognizing that God doesn't break those promises. God then having the story of Simeon and Anna and look, I did it. I promised I would be there and here I am. And what do they do when that happens? They rejoice. They give thanks to God. It's that recognition of look at what God has done. Here is another fun fact. In both Sulk and Sabin, With their vaccines, neither of them patented any of it because it was for the betterment of humankind. There was no money transfer. There was no profits that were made. It was for the betterment of humankind. It was recognizing the beauty of what God had done for the betterment of all of us. And I think that's where it's amazing to be able to see and just realize that how often in life do we actually get to that point of just pure rejoicing and recognizing what God has done. And I think when we're in this Christmas season, especially that this year we only get one Sunday of it, I think it's worth celebrating that, living into that recognizing that that is so amazing that it's worth celebrating recognizing that god fulfilling that promise is what makes it amazing and i think that's one of the things as a scientist what continues to drive us is so that we can continue to see and understand more about god and fulfill promises about understanding more and more of what god has created so that we can rejoice more at the beautiful creation of what god has done so we'll wrap this up as we always do I pray God blesses you through your faith and amazes you through science. And I'll see you next year.